Would you pray with me again? Dear Lord, I thank you. Thank you for your word that never changes. I just pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So these last couple of weeks, as we've been leading up to Resurrection Sunday, we've been talking a lot about facing trials. As Jesus, literally in the last 24 hours of his life, faced several trials. But it wasn't just Jesus that was coming to various reckonings, was it? We talked about Caiaphas and how he responded. We talked about Peter, how he responded. We talked about Pilate, how Pilate responded. Because when we come up to difficulties, when we come up to things that try our patience, things that try our faith, as humans we tend to respond with either fight or flight, right? We tend to say, I want to attack back when I'm being attacked. Or we want to run away and get away from all the problems. One of the hardest things that we can do as a human being is just to stand. 501 years ago today, there was a Catholic priest named Martin Luther who got into trouble and was taken to call to the carpet on this day by his, by his supervisors. And they told him that he absolutely had to recant. He had to say that he was wrong about the fact that we are saved by God's grace, by his unmerited favor, that we are saved through faith in Christ and not by anything that we've done. They said, you absolutely have to say that that was wrong. He said, well, give me a day. So he came back the next day and he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I, I, I can't do otherwise. May God help me. That's hard. It's hard not to fight back and it's hard not to run away, but to come back and say, let me just stand where I'm standing. It's hard. If, if you've got authorities that are saying, I, I stand against you as a Christian, if you've, you're facing stress, if you're facing opposition, if you're facing people who are trying to attack you, it's, it's hard to stand on force of conscience, on force of character. So Peter was perfectly fine with fighting, drew a sword. And Jesus said, yeah, that's not what we're doing. He wasn't perfectly fine with taking a stand. Unless he had a sword in his hand. So he ran away. Caiaphas. Caiaphas broke the very law that he was upset with Jesus for seemingly breaking. Pilate. Pilate said, I want to wash my hands of the whole thing. Is there some way that I could just avoid the whole Jesus question? I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to make decisions about it. I don't want to have any authority or responsibility for it. What did Jesus do? When he, when he was facing throngs of people, waving palm branches, saying, we're worshiping, and he says, yeah, your worship is about as filling as an empty fig tree, right? When, when he prayed and said, I really don't want to get nailed to a stick. I would really rather not do that. But it's not what I want, it's what God wants. Because I trust God here. 
When he told Peter not to fight back and Peter couldn't do that and instead denied Christ over and over, denied he even knew him, denied he was even his friend, denied everything about him. When Jesus faced the Sanhedrin's lies and didn't respond in kind, when he faced Rome's governor and didn't plead for his life, when he faced soldiers that mocked him and hated him but he didn't respond in hate, when people mocked him on the cross and he actively forgave them. What kind of force of character did jesus show in his responses when he faced these trials when jesus said i am not captived by rome i am not captived by the sanhedrin i am self-captived by god's truth god's word i choose this cross well as elsie read in john 20 early on the first day of the week and i have to stop which day is that Sunday, not Monday, right? It's important. There was no weekend. Um, It's Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, right? So he rested on the Sabbath, and then the day after the Sabbath, John, in in, in his own uh, revelation later, referred to it as the Lord's Day to specify it's not the Sabbath, it's the Lord's Day. Point is, after he had rested, early on the first day of the week, that first Resurrection Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Because if you remember, he was dead, right? He was, he was, he was really dead. He wasn't just bruised. He wasn't just slightly injured. We know he was dead. Because we know from, uh, from John's Gospel earlier, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a member of the Sanhedrin, had asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, and Joseph had been one of the disciples, but secretly because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, who was another one. Nicodemus is the guy that Jesus came to in the middle of the night because Nicodemus was so afraid. Nicodemus was the one that Jesus said, you do realize you need to be born again. Nicodemus was the one who said, pretty sure my mom wouldn't enjoy that. How do I do that? She's like, no, 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 no. Y'all been born once. That's why you're breathing, right? But if you want to be alive, you need to be born again. You need to be born from the Holy Spirit. Something needs to change on the inside of you because you were born spiritually stillborn. And you need to be born again because life gets breathed into you by God who sculpted you. You need something different. It's not enough just to say, oh, I was born once. No, let God change you. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of the stuff. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the 75 pounds of spices in strips and linen. If you take somebody who had been beaten within an inch of their lives and you nail them to a cross and then stick them with a spear, and then wrap them with 75 pounds of spices in a hole in the ground and cover it, they're dead. They're just dead. They're just dead, dead. He's dead. This was in accordance to the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was this new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, because it was the Passover, since the tomb was nearby, they just laid Jesus there. They're like, we're going to come back after the Passover, after the Sabbath is done. We'll come back 
on Sunday morning and we'll finish burying him. We'll just wrap him in the 75 pounds of spices. We'll put the linen on him. We'll come back. They didn't realize at the time that the Jewish priests and leaders were going to say, we need to seal the tomb. They just figured, that's okay, we'll seal it later when we're all done. But Matthew's gospel tells us that the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and they said, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. And so I had to stop there. They already knew it, right? Even his opponents knew and remembered that Jesus said, yeah, third day I'm not going to be in the tomb anymore. Right? I'm going to die, but it won't take for long. Trust me. He told his disciples this multiple times. These guys heard it. Time and again, we hear Pilate calling him a king. We hear the thief on the cross next to him calling him Christ. We hear the people that murdered him saying, by the way, he's planning to rise again. Everybody knows all the details. Y'all have heard a lot of these details, right? Yeah, you put on ties and dresses, you came to church. You've heard a lot of these things. Everybody knew all the details. Some of them believed him. And some of them let that change them from the inside out. So when I say today, make some decisions about what you believe based on what you hear, what you know, and make a decision about letting God change you, you're in good company because that's everybody we're talking about in this story, right? Anyway, so they said, hey, he said that he was going to rise again. Well, take a guard, Pilate answered him and said, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Make it so nobody's getting in there. So they, they went, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone, posting a guard, maybe even a Roman guard. These guys were tough. If you, if you lose your charge, you lose your life. You know, these guys aren't going to mess up. Well, in Matthew's gospel, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to look at the tomb to finish burying Jesus, right? Which is where we started in John. Of course, Mark's gospel tells us that they asked each other, oh, wait a minute. How are we getting in? We hadn't thought about that. How do we, how do we, how do we roll away the stone? We have to finish. Uh, ooh, maybe we should have thought of that. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it, which I love, because this is the second earthquake in three days, right? Jerusalem is not known for its earthquakes, really. But this is the second earthquake in two days, man. This is a busy place. And I love the word picture. He goes, boom, violent earthquake. And now I'll just wait. He just sits there waiting for these people. And his appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of them that they shook and became like dead men because they were smart. If a if an angel with lightning and bright and violent earthquake and rolled the stone, you should be scared, shouldn't you? You should be. Anybody that sees an angel in the scripture, just, nah. But what I love is, he didn't open the tomb so that Jesus could get out. He was already gone. He opened an empty tomb. He didn't open it so that Jesus could get out. He opened it so that the women could get in. Who will open up the tomb? God's like, actually, I already thought of that. I'm way ahead of you, strangely. The tomb was already empty, and the angel said to the women, though not to the guards, don't be afraid. 
they should be. You not. No. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. I didn't open it for him. I opened it for you. In fact, the Gospel of Luke includes the detail. So, so why, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not being a jerk. He's just saying, you, you knew that, right? You knew he wasn't going to be here. Yeah, we had to come finish burying him. Why? You knew he wasn't going to be here. The guys that buried him, that killed him, didn't think he was going to be here. You guys knew that, right? He's not here, the angel said. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Do you remember that whole conversation that you had with Jesus? Then they remembered his words. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because we don't do that, right? I mean, all the stuff that I'm preaching that you go, yeah, I've heard this before. This means nothing. Right, because you've heard it. They already knew all this stuff. So they're like, oh, that's, that's right. There's what I know and there's what I believe and there's what I let change me. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others who naturally went, right. I'm a little skeptical. Though we're told, we're told in John 20, Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. It's his cousin, John. He had two different cousins, John. Anyway, his cousin, John, who is writing this, and rather than say, me, says, no, I'll be, I, I will be humble and just say, the disciple Jesus really loved. Um, so Mary said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. I mean, I, I remember Jesus' words and I understood what the angel was saying, but it's hard to believe or to know exactly what it means. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb and both were running because why wouldn't you? This isn't stuff that you could just vaguely listen to. It's either a joke or it's real and you should run to it, Right? I think so. So they were running. But John outran Peter and reached the tomb first because he was younger. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. didn't go in. But Simon Peter was behind him, arrived, and because he was Peter, ran right in. Just barreled right in, right past him. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen The strips are still there. The cloth is still there. I assume the 75 pounds of spices are still there. So grave robbers stripped him and stole the body, but naked, and then stayed and folded everything back up? Jesus climbed out from under 75 pounds of spices, naked, folded everything back up and left. What are your options here? Finally, the other disciple reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw, and he believed. He's like, actually, the only thing that makes any sense, and I don't know how it works, but the only thing that makes any sense is that he's just not dead anymore. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't understand all those Old Testament things that Jesus had pointed to, all those things that Paul later unpacks. They didn't understand it fully. But at least John said, it's the only thing that makes any sense. Why do we have Roman guards still sitting there drooling? Why is, why is this 
stone rolled away? Why are the ropes that were holding it in place burnt? Why is his body gone? Why? The only thing that makes sense. But then the disciples went back to their homes because, you know, it's over. That was really cool. Because that's what you do. Easter is really cool, and then you get on with real life, right? It's done. That was a special momentary event. You wear a really nice hat. You have some breakfast, pastel, and then you get on with real life. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying because she's still lost in her grief. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb herself, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one in his head and the other at his foot. And they said, why are you crying? This is actually a cool thing. Why are you crying? And it's not that they didn't understand grief. They just didn't understand why you'd have grief about somebody who's not dead. He's alive again. Why are you crying? I don't see him. Yeah. Then the angel, there was supposed to be an angel out there explaining it to you. Did he not? Yes, he did. Why are you crying? The angel said, woman, why are you crying? She said, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. I already told the disciples this. I don't understand. See, because we tend to only see the things that we're emotionally already prepared to see in life. You're already emotionally prepared to see why Brian was wrong when you enter into an argument with Brian. Therefore, strangely, the more you chat with him, the more you realize he's clearly the one that was wrong. It couldn't have been me. I'm not emotionally prepared to see that. If I'm talking about people who need to find Jesus Christ and be changed from the inside out, I'm talking to, I don't know, people who are already emotionally prepared when they walk in the building. We tend to be emotionally prepared to see only what we're emotionally prepared to see. She was looking for a corpse. When she didn't see it, she just assumed somehow her Lord had been taken. I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize who it was. She didn't realize it was Jesus, maybe because she was crying so hard, maybe because she's only emotionally prepared to see what she's emotionally prepared to see, right? And he says, woman, why are you crying? I've got to echo with those guys. Why are you crying? I don't know where he is. Why are you crying? I'm right here. Who, who, who is it that you're looking for, Mary? Do the math on this. And she's probably thought he's some guy trying to be nice, maybe trying to, maybe you got the wrong tomb, ma'am. What are you looking for? And she's like, he's a gardener. I, if you've taken away somewhere, if you've carried him, please tell me where you put him. I'll go get him. And he says, Mary, you silly goose, implied in the Greek. <laughs> Mary, you silly goose, I'm right here. Why are you crying? Who, who are you looking for? Jesus? Who are you looking for? He looks just like you. He says, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She's like, whoa, uh, I was looking for you. I've been looking for you the whole time. That's who I've been looking for. I've been looking for you. And she apparently flung herself at him. And Jesus said to her, no, no, don't hold on to me. I haven't returned to the Father. Don't, don't cling to me like I'm sticking around. That's not why I'm here. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God, your God. I'm back, but I'm only passing through. Tell them, and I'll see them in a minute. But I have to stop and, and let you know, because you're crying. Couldn't just walk past that. I love you, Mary. She went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them all that he, all that he had said these things to her. And She wasn't the only one, though, if you remember. She's not the only one that was at the tomb. 
John seemed to get it. But Peter, Peter was still a little bit on the struggle bus. Peter needed a little bit of normalcy to hang on to. Even after, even after Jesus had appeared to them, he needed a little bit of getting back to normal. We're told in John chapter 21, verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel from Cana and the sons of Zebedee, Christ's cousins, and two other disciples were together, and Peter says, I'm going to go out to fish. That's what I know to do. I'm a fisherman. And they all say, yeah, we'll go with you, because he's like, you know, this is what we do. This is, this is normalcy, right? I mean, Easter was cool. Don't get me wrong. Easter rocked, but that was maybe yesterday. Now we got stuff to do. Yes, Jesus had called them away from being professional fishermen. He said, now I want you to fish for people. <laughs> I want you to bring people to God. But then, you know, he died, and so that's over. So let's get back to being normal. Peter's like, I, I don't know what to do. I, I betrayed Jesus. As bad as Judas, I... I denounced him three times. I swore up and down. I swore, literally. I said curses on myself. I, I denied even knowing him. Jesus had said, leave that, that fishing business. Follow me. And, and they'd been kind of following him up to that point when Jesus called them. They, they'd been following him around. They'd been listening when he preached. He would preach and they'd be cleaning their nets after a night's work. And they'd be like, yeah, that's really interesting. It's like a podcast. You know, I'm doing stuff, and I'm listening. That was interesting. But at some point, Jesus looked at him and goes, No, no. Eyes, Peter. Follow me. Not just, yeah, I follow that podcast. No, 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 no. Drop stuff and live like this. Live like this means something to you. Follow me. And they said, yes. And they dropped what they were doing, and they went. But then he died, and then it was Easter, and that was cool, but now you've got to get back to doing, not following. But you sure, podcasts. Yeah, let's go, let's go fishing. So they went out at night and got into the boat, and they didn't catch anything. Maybe they're out of practice. I don't know. Then again, the same thing happened back in Luke 5, didn't it? Where they fished all night and didn't catch anything. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. I don't know, maybe they were sleepy. Maybe the sun was in their eyes. Maybe they were only prepared to see what they were emotionally already prepared to see. Anyway, he called out to them, Hey, guys, haven't you caught any fish? Literally, guys, you haven't caught anything? And realize, again, they didn't know it was Jesus. So their, their response is no, but the implication is, jerk. You know, because they didn't know who he was. He's like, you didn't catch anything? No. Thank you. He said, hey, tell you what, why don't you throw your net onto the uh, right side of the boat? You're going to find some there. And when they did, why? Been fishing all night, caught nothing. Jerk on the beach said, yeah, try this. And they did. Why? Were they desperate? Why not? Or did they remember, you know, the same thing happened to us back in Luke chapter 5. Oh, well, they try. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Because the same thing happened back in Luke chapter 5. He's like, and he's my cousin. Trust me, I know. I know what Jesus does. 
And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off to go fish. And he jumped into the water. Why? Because he's Peter. Peter doesn't think. Peter doesn't patient. Peter goes, ah. and he's excited because he's right to be excited. You should be running here. He's, he's like, I'm splashing. I'll wait for the other guys to bring in the fish. At which point all the other guys are like, Really? Thanks. So Peter goes splashing in the water to get to Jesus. Remembering the same thing that happened back in Luke chapter 5. Actually, do you remember what happened back in Luke chapter 5? When Simon Peter had seen that first miraculous catch of fish, do you remember what he said to Jesus? What his immediate reaction was? He fell knee deep in the fish. (laughs) Biggest catch of fish that he'd ever had in his career. Fell knee deep in the fish and said... Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm messed up. I'm broken. The first time I saw this, the first time I really realized who this was, I knew how broken I was. And I said, go away. And the last time I saw Jesus was when he looked at me just as I denounced him for the third time. Last time this catch happened, I said, go away, I'm, I'm broken, go away from me, Lord. And back then, after, Paul, after, after Peter said, I'm a messed up, I'm a broken person, you're this holy man, go away. Jesus replied, no, you come to me. No, you're telling me to go away. I'm saying, back in Mark chapter 1, he says, no, you come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. That's what I'm saying. You say, oh, you're clearly holy, go away. Jesus says, I'm clearly holy, come to me. You think you're broken and you should leave me. I'm saying you're broken and you should come to me. Difference of perspective. You think you're unlovable because you're broken. I think you're broken and I love you. Well, back here in in John, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish that they couldn't bring into the boat because it was too many and they were down one more guy. They were not far from shore. They were only about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, oh, bring some of the fish you caught, which is a nice, sweet little pastoral scene. And I think one of the most powerful images of the resurrection. It's simple to read that and not think about it too much. They brought in all these fish. And Jesus was already cooking fish. Where do you get the fish? And he says, you know what? Bring your fish. I don't, I don't need your fish. I already made fish. But I want to add your work to my work. I already made breakfast. It's done. Come eat. But what you've done is important to me. And let's add what you did to what I've done. I'm pretty sure he's still doing that. I'm pretty sure Martin Luther, Martin Luther was right, that Paul was right, that it's not our works that save us but God's unmerited favor. But he says, but I want, I want to add your works to mine. I want you to be part of this process. I want you to come join me in what I'm doing. I don't, I don't need you to join me. I want you to. I love you guys. We're broken. I'm aware. I'm aware. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153 
very large fish. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn because it may have been more than they could handle, but it wasn't more than God was preparing to handle. And Jesus said to them, come on, have some breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they figured it out. Like, yep, no, they knew there's the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And this is actually the third time that he appeared to his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. After he'd appeared to them that night, after he came later and appeared to Thomas to make that. We'll talk about Thomas maybe soon. But when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Hey, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these? Love me more than you love these fish. Love me more than you love the, than you love everybody. Love me more than these guys love me. I don't know. Greek is ambiguous. So you really love me more than these? Because that's what you promised, right? You said, oh, I'll, I'll die with you. I'll never betray you, right? Remember that? Three days ago, four days ago when you were, you were telling me, you're so wrong, Lord. I will never do what I told you you were going to do. Remember that? Do you actually love me? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I, you know, I care about you. Actually, he uses a slightly different word for love. Slightly less intense word for love. Yeah, I care about you. And Jesus said, okay, then feed my lambs. Called you for a purpose, Peter, and it wasn't just to go fishing and go back to your old life. You're supposed to be changed. Feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you, do you genuinely love me? Do you really, going back to the word he used, do you genuinely love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I care about you. Peter went back to his word. Yeah. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. Last Thursday, Jesus had told him, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you have to love one another. It has to work this way. You need to do that, Peter. Take care of my sheep. And so a third time he said to him, this time using Peter's word, Simon, son of John, do you even really care about me? Do you? And Peter was hurt because Jesus said this. Do you, you make promises you never kept. You, you fell asleep when I asked you to stay awake. You, you, you fought when I asked you to take a stand and to stand with me. You abandoned me when, when you promised that you would never do, but you were too scared. You, you denied me because servant girls made you frightened. Time and again, you faced trials and you failed them constantly. So I'm asking you, do you even care? Peter's hurt and he goes, Lord, you know all things. You know I, I really care about you. This is as much as I understand. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Am I making myself clear, Peter? I have stuff I still want you to do. And yes, Jesus knows his heart. But the question is, Peter, do you? Clearly, you still feel horribly guilty. You know why? Because you're horribly guilty. You feel broken. You know why? Because you're broken. Good. You have an accurate assessment of yourself. Do you love me? As much as I can. Okay. Okay. Three times you denied me. Three times you've now reaffirmed me. Are we cool? Are we good? Because Peter's sitting there, could Christ ever forgive somebody like me? Could Christ ever forgive somebody who's done what I've done? Could, could Christ forgive me? The last time they were on our 
on a beach with a huge cache of fish. Peter said, go away from me. And Jesus said, no, you come follow me. What does he do this time? We're told in verse 19 that Jesus looks at Peter again and says, then follow me, Peter. <laughs> Enough with these nets. Pick up this net. Enough with these nets and picking up fish. Pick up people. This is what I called you to, Peter. Peter, I just died to forgive the whole world. Do you really think I would even stutter step in forgiving you? Is there anybody in this world that Jesus would say, I don't know about you. Peter, my blood was shed for everyone. If you love me, take it. Feed my sheep. Love my people. This is the great do-over, the great second chance God gave to everyone on Resurrection Sunday. If you remember from Isaiah that we read on, on Friday night, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. We assumed from our broken perspective that he was nothing special. A good teacher that died an ignoble death, that God must have just abandoned him. That, yeah. But Jesus said, no, 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 Nicodemus. God wants to change everyone's hearts. He wants to change your heart. He wants you not just to sit in a pew on a Sunday and go, I did church, and then leave and do real life. God wants you to be different tomorrow than you were yesterday. And to stay that. That's what God wants. You have to be born again. Make a decision to let the blood shed on the cross behind the doorpost of your heart so that God's wrath that you and I have all deserved would pass over you. Because Isaiah continued, it said, surely he took up our infirmities, our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted by God, and he wasn't. He was just beaten by us. And God let everything that smites and afflicts us land on him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we were healed. That's force of character. He wasn't just a good teacher. He's not just like an innocent man dying a wrongful death. He died for a purpose. Came for a purpose. Paid the price. Because in Romans, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of us choosing to go apart from God. When we say, this is what God wants. This is what God designed me for. And I go this way. That's where death comes in. That's toxic. It's always toxic. Paul says, when we sin, we earn death. And yet, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, bought for us on that Good Friday. And that life began on that Resurrection Sunday. Paul says, if you think this is just a myth, if Christ really hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, he tells the Corinthians. It's a joke. If you haven't been born again, if you can't be born again, because even Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if you're still dead, then you're still dead. But, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead on that first Easter morning, that first resurrection Sunday. 
Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, the pioneer and the pathmaker for what happens after death. In his next letter, Paul says, Jesus died for all, that those who live no longer should live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted to you today, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I couldn't do otherwise. Let me encourage you. Stand in God's truth. Don't run away from it. Don't fight against it. Think about what you've heard today. Make a decision to let Christ wash over you, to change you from the inside out so that you are born again and you are not who you were. If you say, I am a Christian already, booyah, you're my brother, you're my sister, that's awesome. Make a decision today to live as an ambassador for that from now on. If you're not a Christian, make a decision to become a child of the living God and eternal life starts today. There's no better day in the calendar than Resurrection Sunday. Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the privilege it is to be children of your family. And we know there are only two kinds of people on this planet, those who are your children and those that we wish could be. So I pray, Lord, help us Help us to start right now, today, to make a decision right now to live as your child, washed clean from sin, our souls resurrected already. Lord, thank you for who you are, not just for what you've done, but who you are in our lives every day. Help us every day to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.